Hello, and welcome to Storytime for Grown-Ups. I'm Faith Moore, and this season we're reading Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. Each episode, I'll read one chapter from the book, pausing from time to time to give brief explanations so it's easier to follow along. It's like an audiobook with built-in notes. So brew a pot of tea, find a cozy chair, and settle in. It's story time. Welcome back. I am so happy to be with you again, particularly today after chapter 15. I love chapter 15. It's sort of suddenly mysterious and spooky and exciting and frightening, and I love that about it. I wish we could have all been sitting together, reading it together, and then looked up at once and had a whole conversation about it. I wish we could all be together. Often I wish that, but this is the next best thing, and it is a wonderful thing, and thank you for letting it be be what it is. I am so grateful for the the comments that have been coming in, the questions, the ratings, the reviews. All of those things are helping to grow the show, and the show really is growing. Ratings and reviews are literally pouring in. It's amazing. I've been watching, and I've been getting all kinds of really interesting and insightful comments and questions from everyone. So thank you, and thank you for being here. Welcome to listeners who have caught up to us, who've been binging from Chapter 1 and have caught up to us here at chapter 16. Welcome. We're so glad to have you along for the ride. Welcome, of course, as always, to those of you who have been with us on this journey from the very beginning. And welcome to completely new listeners who are finding us for the very first time. If this is your first time with Jane Eyre and you've never read the book before, you don't know anything about it, I do recommend pausing this episode and going back to chapter one because we're reading Jane Eyre chapter by chapter with a few notes along the way. So you'll be confused if you start here because we're about to launch into chapter 16. If you have read Jane Eyre and you just want to join a group of people who are reading it together and talking about it, then please stick around. We're happy to have you. If you haven't already, please make sure that you are subscribed or following wherever you're listening. That really helps the show and it helps you to make sure that you don't miss an episode. If you haven't rated or reviewed, please consider tapping those five stars if you're enjoying the show. And if you have a little bit of extra time and you're so inclined, write a review. That would be amazing. That would really help. So thank you. And thank you for being here. Let's dive in. So we are going to be reading chapter 16 of Jane Eyre today. And before we do, I got a really fun and interesting question that is going to allow us to jump into a topic that I think it would be really pertinent and important for us to discuss at this particular point. So I'm glad I got this question that can kind of tee that off. So we're going to do that. Don't forget that you can always write in to ask questions or comment on some of the things that we've been talking about in these question sections or in the chapter itself, you can get in touch via my website, faithkmore.com. You can click on contact and that goes right to my email. There's also a link to that contact page in the show notes. so You can just scroll right down. You can also find me on X at faithkmore. You can send me a DM or you can post and tag me or you can reply to one of the posts that I do about the show and I get all of those things. And so I really do welcome and encourage you to please write in with your questions and thoughts, even if we've moved on to another chapter, because I save the questions and they become relevant as we move forward and then I'll pick and choose from those. So don't be shy. Please do reach out. Okay, so before we move into our question for today, let's just do a quick recap of where we left off at the end of chapter 15. 
In chapter 15, there were two separate incidents. The first was a conversation that Jane had with Mr. Rochester, where Mr. Rochester told Jane about his past. He told her that he had been in love with Celine Varens, who was Adele's mother, but who and who was an opera dancer that he had kind of paid for to live in a hotel and to have everything that she wanted and needed, but that she had been cheating on him with someone else and he found out and left her, but that she told him that Adele was his and ran off and kind of left Adele and he decided to take care for Adele, even though he feels certain that she is not actually his. He is caring for her because he feels it's the right thing to do and he also hopes that it will somehow erase some of his other sins, which he has not yet shared with Jane because he's doing this good deed of raising Adele. So we learned that about him in the first part. In the second part, Jane is awakened in the middle of the night by strange sounds and laughter and, and weird, weird sounds in the hallway, only to discover that Mr. Rochester's bed is on fire. And she ran in and put out the fire. He left her there and went upstairs and came back to say that it was Grace Poole, again, who had set this fire and made the strange sounds, but he didn't seem to want to wake anybody else up or call the police or anything like that. And as Jane was leaving, Mr. Rochester suddenly spoke to her in a much more emotional way, thanked her for saving his life, and seemed to be saying that he had some kind of feeling connection to her that he hadn't previously expressed. But Jane was very uncomfortable and she said she heard Mrs. Fairfax and ran off. But then in her room, she started to think that perhaps Mr. Rochester had feelings for her and she was examining her own feelings and trying to figure out how she felt as well. All right, so today's question comes to us from Jacob Nalder. He wrote, bird alert. In this chapter, Mr. Rochester says he likes Thornfield in several of its features. Two stood out to me, crow trees and thorn trees. As we've discussed in the book, birds are often associated with Jane. Maybe the thorn trees are related to Mr. Rochester himself? Thorns are prickly and not easy to get close to. He's prickly and not easy to get close to. And the house is his and is named Thornfield. So I, I like this. This is a great catch and a cool analysis about the ways that the house seems to represent its owner, Mr. Rochester, and perhaps also Jane, now that she is living here too. And it brings up something that I think would be really worthwhile to discuss at this particular point in the story, which is the concept of a gothic novel. When we think of gothic novels, if we think of them at all, we probably are picturing gothic horror. Books like Dracula or Frankenstein, I think, most easily come to mind when we think about gothic. Those would be books that take place in a spooky old building or a sort of oppressively spooky atmosphere generally that make ample use of the supernatural and are meant to be truly frightening or at least to give you the creeps. Though generally gothic, even gothic horror, doesn't have blood and gore and jump scares like sort of true horror or the horror or modern horror that you would think of now. So, but horror doesn't actually have to go hand in hand with gothic. And gothic literature has a few very specific elements that Jane Eyre also has. And Jacob's comment kind of alludes to this. That's how it's related. So the word gothic actually refers to a specific type of architecture, an architectural style that was popular in the medieval period. And you can pretty easily picture it if you can picture like a large old church, like Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. So 
this type of architecture would have features like flying buttresses, spires, gargoyles, pointed arches, ribbed vaults, and lots of really detailed and intricate stonework. So, but in the early 1800s, so remember, Gothic architecture comes from the medieval period, but in the early 1800s, Gothic architecture was making a comeback. And that architectural period was called the Gothic Revival or Neo-Gothic. And at the same time, Gothic literature was becoming very popular. So for both the architects and the writers, Gothic buildings of the medieval period represented a time of mystery, superstition, awe, and the sort of thrilling chill that you get from reading a spooky story. There were religious and political reasons for the revival of Gothic architecture at that time, but I'm not going to go into them here because we'd be here all day and it doesn't really matter for our purposes. Suffice it to say that these buildings and the ideas they invoked were making a comeback around the time that Bronte was writing Jane Eyre. So what are the characteristics of a Gothic novel? Like I just said, mystery, superstition, awe, and a sort of thrilling chill you get from reading a spooky story, right? So Gothic novels take place often in Gothic locales. Here, and this goes back to Jacob's point, we've got Thornfield Hall, which is an old, sort of gloomy, somewhat spooky, especially the third story, building. They include the threat of the supernatural, which we've already talked about, right? If you want a refresher, you can listen to episode 13 at the beginning where we talked about the ways that the supernatural or the threat of it or a belief in it have already come into play in the story. These novels include a sense of Fear, which is why I'm bringing this up now, because I think that we can safely say that there is something frightening and mysterious going on at Thornfield now, what with Grace Poole wandering around and at night and laughing and setting fire to people's bedrooms, right? And these books also often involve characters with something in their past that haunts them, which we have learned about Mr. Rochester and we discussed last episode when we were talking about Byronic heroes. So, Jane Eyre is an example, and you will see this play out as we go along, of a kind of gothic novel with a female protagonist, of which there are many. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier is another great example, and it is not, and but that is not horror. So gothic literature, but not gothic horror. So I just wanted to bring that up. Watch out for gothic elements along the way as we go along, and write in to tell me what you notice. I love that we can talk about that here. I think it was, I think it's the right moment to bring up this idea of the Gothic novel. And I would love to know what you, what you think. And as we go along, whether you agree that Gothic is the right description for this story. So please write in. And as always, please write in with your questions. If you have a question as I'm reading chapter 16, you can pause the episode, scroll down to that link and, and write that question to me so you don't forget. I love getting your questions and I love going on these little dives with you at the beginning of the show. So please do write in. I love to hear from you. All right, let's get started with chapter 16 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. It's story time. Chapter 16. I both wished and feared to see Mr. Rochester on the day which followed this sleepless night. I wanted to hear his voice again, yet feared to meet his eye. During the early part of the morning, I momentarily expected his coming. He was not in the frequent habit of entering the schoolroom, but he did step in for a few minutes sometimes, and I had the impression that he was sure to visit it that day. But the morning passed just as usual. Nothing happened to interrupt the quiet course of Adele's studies. 
Only soon after breakfast I heard some bustle in the neighborhood of Mr. Rochester's chamber. Mrs. Fairfax's voice, and Leah's, and the cook's, that is, John's wife, and even John's own gruff tones. There were exclamations of, What a mercy master was not burnt in his bed! It is always dangerous to keep a candle lit at night. How providential that he had presence of mind to think of the water jug. I wonder he waked nobody. It is to be hoped he will not take cold with sleeping on the library sofa, etc. Okay, so based on what she's overhearing the servant saying, it seems like Mr. Rochester told everyone that he fell asleep with a candle burning and then woke up to the fire and used his water pitcher to put out the fire. To much confabulation succeeded a sound of scrubbing and setting to rights. And when I passed the room, in going downstairs to dinner, I saw through the open door that all was again restored to complete order. Only the bed was stripped of its hangings. So beds back then had curtains called hangings around them, and the curtains caught fire, so they're the only things missing from the room now that the servants have put everything back in order. Leah stood up in the window seat, rubbing the panes of glass dimmed with smoke. I was about to address her, for I wished to know what account had been given of the affair. But on advancing, I saw a second person in the chamber, a woman sitting on a chair by the bedside and sewing rings to new curtains. The woman was no other than Grace Poole. There she sat, staid and taciturn looking as usual, in her brown stuff gown, her check apron, white handkerchief, and cap. She was intent on her work, in which her whole thoughts seemed absorbed. On her hard forehead and in her commonplace features was nothing either of the paleness or desperation one would have expected to see marking the countenance of a woman who had attempted murder and whose intended victim had followed her last night to her lair and, as I believed, charged her with the crime she wished to perpetrate. I was amazed, confounded. She looked up, while I still gazed at her. No start, no increase or failure of color betrayed emotion, consciousness of guilt, or fear of detection. She said, Good morning, miss, in her usual phlegmatic and brief manner, and taking up another ring and more tape, went on with her sewing. I will put her to some test, thought I. Such absolute impenetrability is past comprehension. Good morning, Grace, I said. Has anything happened here? I thought I heard the servants all talking together a while ago. Only Master has been reading in his bed last night. He fell asleep with his candle lit, and the curtains got on fire. But, fortunately, he awoke before the bedclothes or the wood caught, and contrived to quench the flames with the water in the ewer. A strange affair, I said in a low voice. Then, looking at her fixedly, Did Mr. Rochester wake nobody? Did no one hear him move? She again raised her eyes to me, and this time there was something of consciousness in their expression. She seemed to examine me warily. Then she answered, The servants sleep so far off, you know, miss, they would not be likely to hear. Mrs. Fairfax's room and yours are the nearest to master's, but Mrs. Fairfax said she heard nothing. When people get elderly, they often sleep heavy. She paused, and then added, with a sort of assumed indifference, but still in a marked and significant tone, But you're young, miss, and I should say a light sleeper. Perhaps you may have heard a noise. I did, I said, dropping my voice so that Leah, who was still polishing the panes, could not hear me. And at first I thought it was Pilate, but Pilate cannot laugh, and I am certain I heard a laugh, and a strange one. She took a new needle full of thread, waxed it carefully, threaded her needle with a steady hand, and then observed, with perfect composure, It is hardly likely Master would laugh, I should think, Miss, when he was in such danger. He must have been dreaming. I was not dreaming. 
I said with some warmth, for her brazen coolness provoked me. Again she looked at me, and with the same scrutinizing and conscious eye. "'Have you told Master that you heard a laugh?' she inquired. "'I have not had the opportunity of speaking to him this morning.' "'You do not think of opening your door and looking out into the gallery?' she further asked. She appeared to be cross-questioning me, attempting to draw from me information unawares. The idea struck me that if she discovered I knew or suspected her guilt, she would be playing of some of her malignant pranks on me. I thought it advisable to be on my guard. Grace seems to be trying to figure out how much Jane knows about what happened, and so Jane is now worried that Grace will try to hurt her if she realizes that Jane knows more than she should. On the contrary, said I, I bolted my door. Then you are not in the habit of bolting your door every night before you get into bed? Fiend! She wants to know my habits, that she may lay her plans accordingly. Indignation again prevailed over prudence. I replied sharply, Hitherto I have often omitted to fasten the bolt. I did not think it necessary. I was not aware any danger or annoyance was to be dreaded at Thornfield Hall. But in future, and I laid marked stress on the words, I shall take good care to make all secure before I venture to lie down. It will be wise to do so was her answer. This neighborhood is as quiet as any I know, and I had never heard of the hall being attempted by robbers since it was a house, though there are hundreds of pounds worth of plate in the plate closet, as is well known. And you see, for such a large house, there are very few servants, because Master has never lived here much, and when he does come, being a bachelor, he needs little waiting on. But I always think it best to err on the safe side. A door is soon fastened, and it is as well to have a drawn bolt between one and any mischief that may be about. A deal of people, miss, are for trusting all to Providence, but I say Providence will not dispense with the means, though he often blesses them when they are used discreetly. And here she closed her harangue, a long one for her, and uttered with the demureness of a Quakeress. I still stood absolutely dumbfounded at what appeared to me her miraculous self-possession and most inscrutable hypocrisy when the cook entered. Mrs. Poole, said she, addressing Grace, the servant's dinner will soon be ready. You will come down? No, just put my pint of porter and a bit of pudding on a tray, and I'll carry it upstairs. You'll have some meat? Just a morsel and a taste of cheese. That's all. And the sago? Sago is an edible starch that comes from tropical palms. Never mind it at present. I shall be coming down before tea time. I'll make it myself. The cook here turned to me, saying that Mrs. Fairfax was waiting for me. So I departed. I hardly heard Mrs. Fairfax's account of the curtain conflagration during dinner, so much was I occupied in puzzling my brains over the enigmatical character of Grace Poole, and still more in pondering the problem of her position at Thornfield, and questioning why she had not been given into custody that morning, or, at the very least, dismissed from her master's service. He had almost as much as declared his conviction of her criminality last night. What mysterious cause withheld him from accusing her? Why had he enjoined me, too, to secrecy? It was strange. A bold, vindictive, and haughty gentleman seemed somehow in the power of one of the meanest of his dependents. Mean here means poor, like not wealthy. So Mr. Rochester seems to Jane to be somehow in Grace Poole's sway and unable to turn her in for attempted murder. So much in her power that even when she lifted her hand against his life, he dared not openly charge her with the attempt, much less punish her for it. Had Grace been young and handsome, I should have been tempted to think that tenderer feelings than prudence or fear influenced Mr. Rochester in her behalf. 
but hard-favored and matronly as she was, the idea could not be admitted. If she were young and pretty, Jane would have thought that maybe Mr. Rochester's motive for not turning her in was lust or love, but since she's matronly and ugly, she assumes that that's probably not it. Yet, I reflected, she has been young once. Her youth would be contemporary with her master's. Mrs. Fairfax told me once she had lived here many years. I don't think she can ever have been pretty, but for aught I know, she may possess originality and strength of character to compensate for the want of personal advantages. Mr. Rochester is an amateur of the decided and eccentric. Grace is eccentric, at least. What if a former caprice, a freak very possible to a nature so sudden and headstrong as his, has derived him into her power, and she now exercises over his actions a secret influence? the result of his own indiscretion, which he cannot shake off and dare not disregard. So now she's saying, what if, when Mr. Rochester and Grace were both young, he had a thing for her and maybe did something untoward, and now, maybe now she's holding that over him. But having reached this point of conjecture, Mrs. Poole's square, flat figure and uncomely, dry, even coarse face recurred so distinctly to my mind's eye that I thought, no, impossible. My supposition cannot be correct. Yet suggested the secret voice which talks to us in our own hearts. You are not beautiful either, and perhaps Mr. Rochester approves you. At any rate, you have often felt as if he did, and last night, remember his words, remember his look, remember his voice. Okay, so she's realizing that she also is not pretty, but that Mr. Rochester does seem to have some kind of special affection for her, at least she's beginning to hope that he does. I well remembered all, Language, glance, and tone seemed at the moment vividly renewed. I was now in the schoolroom. Adele was drawing. I bent over her and directed her pencil. She looked up with a sort of start. Qu'avez-vous, mademoiselle? said she. Vos doigts tremblent comme la fouille, et vos joues sont rouges, mais rouges comme des cerises. She's saying, What is the matter with you, miss? Your hands tremble like a leaf, and your cheeks are red, red as cherries. I am hot, Adele, with stooping. She went on sketching. I went on thinking. I hastened to drive from my mind the hateful notion I had been conceiving respecting Grace Poole. It disgusted me. I compared myself with her and found we were different. Bessie Levin, remember Bessie, her nurse, had said I was quite a lady, and she spoke truth. I was a lady. And now I looked much better than I did when Bessie saw me. I had more color and more flesh, more life, more vivacity, because I had brighter hopes and keener enjoyments. Evening approaches, said I, as I looked towards the window. I have never heard Mr. Rochester's voice or step in the house today. But surely I shall see him before night. I feared the meeting in the morning. Now I desire it, because expectation has been so long baffled that it has grown impatient. When dusk actually closed, and when Adele left me to go and play in the nursery with Sophie, I did most keenly desire it. I listened for the bell to ring below. I listened for Leah coming up with a message. I fancied sometimes I heard Mr. Rochester's own tread, and I turned to the door, expecting it to open and admit him. The door remained shut. Darkness only came in through the window. Still, it was not late. He often sent for me at seven and eight o'clock, and it was yet but six. Surely I should not be wholly disappointed tonight, when I had so many things to say to him. I wanted again to introduce the subject of Grace Poole and to hear what he would answer. I wanted to ask him plainly if he really believed it was she who had made last night's hideous attempt, and if so, why he kept her wickedness a secret. 
It little mattered whether my curiosity irritated him. I knew the pleasure of vexing and soothing him by turns. It was one I chiefly delighted in, and a sure instinct always prevented me from going too far. Beyond the verge of provocation, I never ventured. On the extreme brink, I liked well to try my skill. Retaining every minute form of respect, every propriety of my station, I could still meet him in argument without fear or uneasy restraint. This suited both him and me. A tread creaked on the stairs at last. Leah made her appearance, but it was only to intimate that tea was ready in Mrs. Fairfax's room. Thither I repaired, glad at least to go downstairs, for that brought me, I imagined, nearer to Mr. Rochester's presence. "'You must want your tea,' said the good lady, as I joined her. "'You ate so little at dinner, I'm afraid,' she continued. "'You are not well today. You look flushed and feverish.' "'Oh, quite well. I never felt better.' "'Then you must prove it by evincing a good appetite. "'Will you fill the teapot while I knit off this needle?' "'Having completed her task, she rose to draw down the blind, "'which she had hitherto kept up, "'by way, I suppose, of making the most of daylight, "'though dusk was now fast deepening into total obscurity. "'It is fair tonight,' said she, as she looked through the panes, "'though not starlight. "'Mr. Rochester has, on the whole, had a favorable day for his journey.' "'Journey? "'Is Mr. Rochester gone anywhere? "'I did not know he was out.' "'Oh, he set off the moment he had breakfasted. "'He has gone to the Lees, Mr. Eshton's place, ten miles on the other side of Milcote. "'I believe there is quite a party assembled there, "'Lord Ingram, Sir George Lynn, Colonel Dent, and others. "'Do you expect him back tonight?' "'No, nor tomorrow either. "'I should think he is very likely to stay a week or more. "'When these fine, fashionable people get together, "'they are so surrounded by elegance and gaiety, "'so well provided with all that can please and entertain, "'they are in no hurry to separate.' Gentlemen, especially, are often in request on such occasions, and Mr. Rochester is so talented and so lively in society that I believe he is a general favorite. The ladies are fond of him, though you would not think his appearance calculated to recommend him particularly in their eyes, but I suppose his acquirements and abilities, perhaps his wealth and good blood, make amends for any little fault of look. So Mr. Rochester is not at home. He's gone to stay with his friends, where there are a lot of fancy people all assembled and staying over for a week or more. So this is a this is something that would have happened at the time. They would dance, they'd sing together, ride horses, you know, go out, etc. And Mrs. Fairfax says that Mr. Rochester is popular with the ladies. So Jane's new realization about her feelings for Mr. Rochester may, might make this an upsetting revelation. Are there ladies at Lee's? There are Mrs. Eshton and her three daughters, very elegant young ladies indeed, and there are the Honorable Blanche and Mary Ingram, most beautiful women, I suppose. Indeed, I have seen Blanche six or seven years since, when she was a girl of eighteen. She came here to a Christmas ball and party Mr. Rochester gave. You should have seen the dining room that day, how richly it was decorated, how brilliantly lit up. I should think there were fifty ladies and gentlemen present, all of the first county families, and Miss Ingram was considered the belle of the evening. You saw her, you say, Mrs. Fairfax. What was she like? Yes, I saw her. The dining room doors were thrown open, and it was Christmas time. The servants were allowed to assemble in the hall to hear some of the ladies sing and play. Mr. Rochester would have me to come in, and I sat down in a quiet corner and watched them. I never saw a more splendid scene. The ladies were magnificently dressed. Most of them, at least most of the younger ones, looked handsome, but Miss Ingram was certainly the queen. And what was she like? Tall, fine bust, sloping shoulders, long, graceful neck, olive complexion, dark and clear, noble features, eyes rather like Mr. Rochester's, large and black, and as brilliant as her jewels, 
and then she had such a fine head of hair, raven black and so becomingly arranged, a crown of thick plaits behind, plaits are braids, and in front the longest, the glossiest curls I ever saw. She was dressed in pure white. An amber-colored scarf was passed over her shoulder and across her breast, tied at the side, and descending in long fringed ends below her knee. She wore an amber-colored flower, too, in her hair. It contrasted well with the jetty mass of her curls. She was greatly admired, of course. Yes, indeed, and not only for her beauty, but for her accomplishments. She was one of the ladies who sang. A gentleman accompanied her on the piano. She and Mr. Rochester sang a duet. Mr. Rochester? I was not aware he could sing. Oh, he has a fine bass voice and an excellent taste for music. And Miss Ingram? What sort of voice had she? A very rich and powerful one. She sang delightfully. It was a treat to listen to her. And she played afterwards, meaning played the piano. I am no judge of music, but Mr. Rochester is, and I heard him say her execution was remarkably good. And this beautiful and accomplished lady, she is not yet married? It appears not. I fancy neither she nor her sister have very large fortunes. Old Lord Ingram's estates were chiefly entailed, and the eldest son came in for everything almost. So Miss Ingram is beautiful and accomplished, but she doesn't have much money to bring to a marriage, so she hasn't found a husband yet. But I wonder no wealthy nobleman or gentleman has taken a fancy to her. Mr. Rochester, for instance. He is rich, is he not? Oh, yes, but you see, there's a considerable difference in age. Mr. Rochester is nearly 40. She is but 25. What of that? More unequal matches are made every day. True, yet I should scarcely fancy Mr. Rochester would entertain an idea of the sort, but you eat nothing. You have scarcely tasted since you began tea. No, I am too thirsty to eat. Will you let me have another cup? I was about, again, to revert to the probability of a union between Mr. Rochester and the beautiful Blanche, but Adele came in, and the conversation was turned into another channel. When once more alone, I reviewed the information I had got looked into my heart, examined its thoughts and feelings, and endeavored to bring back with a strict hand such as had been straying through imagination's boundless and trackless waste into the safe fold of common sense. So she realizes that she's allowed herself to become jealous and to imagine that she might be admired by Mr. Rochester and that that is wildly improbable. And so she needs to calm down. Arraigned at my own bar, memory having given her evidence of the hopes, wishes, sentiments I had been cherishing since last night, of the general state of mind in which I had indulged for nearly a fortnight past, reason having come forward and told in her own quiet way a plain, unvarnished tale showing how I had rejected the real and rabidly devoured the ideal, I pronounced judgment to this effect. That a greater fool than Jane Eyre had never breathed the breath of life, that a more fantastic idiot had never surfeited herself on sweet lies and swallowed poison as if it were nectar. You, I said, a favorite with Mr. Rochester? You, gifted with the power of pleasing him? You, of importance to him in any way? Go, your folly sickens me. She's talking to herself. And you have derived pleasure from occasional tokens of preference? Equivocal tokens shown by a gentleman of family and a man of the world to a dependent and a novice? How dared you? Poor, stupid dupe. Could not even self-interest make you wiser? You repeated to yourself this morning the brief scene of last night? Cover your face and be ashamed. He said something in praise of your eyes, did he? Blind puppy. Open their bleared lids and look on your own accursed senselessness. It does good to no woman to be flattered by her superior. 
who cannot possibly intend to marry her. And it is madness in all women to let a secret love kindle within them, which, if unreturned and unknown, must devour the life that feeds it. And if discovered and responded to, must lead, ignis fatuous-like, into miry wilds whence there is no extrication. So ignis fatuous is another word for a will-o'-the-wisp, which is like a mysterious light that leads people astray in the woods. So she's telling herself how ridiculous she's been to think that Mr. Rochester cares about her any more than he would for his ward's governess. Listen, then, Jane Eyre, to your sentence. Tomorrow, place a glass before you, the glass would be a mirror, and draw in chalk your own picture. Faithfully, without softening one defect, omit no harsh line, smooth away no displeasing irregularity, write under it, portrait of a governess, disconnected, poor, and plain. Afterwards, take a piece of smooth ivory. You have one prepared in your drawing box, Take your palette, mix your freshest, finest, clearest tints, choose your most delicate camel hair pencils, delineate carefully the loveliest face you can imagine, paint it in your softest shades and sweetest lines, according to the description given by Mrs. Fairfax of Blanche Ingram. Remember the raven ringlets, the oriental eye. What? You revert to Mr. Rochester as a model? Order. No snivel, no sentiment, no regret. I will endure only sense and resolution. Recall the august yet harmonious lineaments, the Grecian neck and bust. Let the round and dazzling arm be visible, and the delicate hand. Omit neither diamond ring nor gold bracelet. Portray faithfully the attire, aerial lace and glistening satin, graceful scarf and golden rose. Call it Blanche, an accomplished lady of rank. Whenever, in future, you should chance to fancy Mr. Rochester thinks well of you, take out these two pictures and compare them. Say, Mr. Rochester might probably win that noble lady's love if he chose to strive for it. Is it likely he would waste a serious thought on this indigent and insignificant plebeian? She's going to draw a picture of herself and a picture of Blanche Ingram, and whenever she thinks Mr. Rochester might favor her, she's going to look at them and see that he could never choose her over Blanche. I'll do it, I resolved, and having framed this determination, I grew calm and fell asleep. I kept my word. An hour or two sufficed to sketch my own portrait in crayons, and in less than a fortnight I had completed an ivory miniature of an imaginary Blanche Ingram. It looked a lovely face enough, and when compared with the real head in chalk, the contrast was as great as self-control could desire. I derived benefit from the task. It had kept my head and hands employed, and had given force and fixedness to the new impressions I wished to stamp indelibly on my heart. Ere long I had reason to congratulate myself on the course of wholesome discipline to which I had thus forced my feelings to submit. Thanks to it, I was able to meet subsequent occurrences with a decent calm, which, had they found me unprepared, I should probably have been unequal to maintain, even externally. So she calms herself down and brings herself back to earth, and she's glad that she did because otherwise she wouldn't have been able to face the things that come next. Thank you so much for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of the chapter. Is there anything you'd like me to clarify? Did something particularly interest you? Please go to my website, faithkmore.com, click on contact and send me your questions and thoughts. Or you can click on the link in the show notes to contact me. I'll feature one or two of your entries at the start of the next episode. 
Before I go, I'd like to ask a quick favor. This is an independent podcast. It's produced, recorded, and marketed by me. So I need your help. Please share this podcast with your friends. Post about it on social media. If you're studying literature at school, tell your teacher and your classmates about it. Talk about it in the break room at work. And if you could, please subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. I would really, really appreciate it. All right, everyone. Story time is over. To be continued. Thank you.